0: I love investing, right? I love placing money in that, let's say, educated bets, right? And say, I want to see this company succeed for more than me just making money at it. So legacy was, I want to do things I'm proud of, which is legacy. And legacy is also like a transition of wealth, right? So I don't want to invest in things and lose all the money, right? Or lose the capital so I can't continue. The goal is to keep doing things that, that we're proud of.
1: Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. The Federal Reserve is printing more money than ever before in history. In fact, of the money in circulation was printed within the last two years. This has led to overpriced assets, overpriced stock markets, and overpriced real estate. So when it comes to investing, how exactly do you find good deals? In today's episode, you'll learn a different approach for investing in deals with high growth potential. I'm speaking with Cole Shepard. Cole is the co-founder of Legacy Group, a highly successful alternative asset management firm based in Columbia. Prior to Legacy Group, he spent eight years providing accounting and advisory services for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is the second largest professional services network in the world and is considered one of the big four accounting firms. Cole's desire to learn led to him working abroad in places like Bermuda and China where he was able to fast track his experience. He provided accounting and advisory services for clients participating in global mergers and acquisition activities and managed major transactions with deal sizes into the billions of dollars. In this episode, Cole shares highlights from his remarkable career and why he eventually decided to quit his job to pursue investing opportunities in developing countries. By the way, one of those opportunities was starting the Green Coffee Company, a coffee producer that is on track to become the largest producer of coffee in Colombia. You'll learn all about undervalued markets with huge potential and why Colombia is one of the best places for lifestyle arbitrage in the world. Emerging markets have less access to capital, which makes them ripe with opportunities for those willing to venture outside their comfort zone. If this sounds interesting, definitely tune into my conversation with Cole Shepard. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Cole has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. Between now and March 31st, he's offering two free bags of his green coffee company, Farm Direct Coffee, to be delivered directly to your house. And if you're listening after March 31st, don't worry. Cole is still providing you with a 20% off coupon anytime you order on Amazon. This offer applies to U.S. residents only. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 71. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Cole Shepard. Hey, Cole, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Happy to be here. Yeah, you've got such a cool background. And I love just the way that I have the privilege and opportunity of meeting really fun, really cool people like yourself, where it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, if you will. And in this case, you know, I've got a mutual friend and you happen to be business partners with my friend who's friends with him. And so it's just been great connecting and seeing all the cool things you're doing in the world. I'm excited to explore your story and your upbringing and kind of where you are today. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Justin. Happy to talk through all those items.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I I love doing on the show is I like talking investing, but I also like talking lifestyle. And the whole reason that it's the lifestyle investor is because I really want the lifestyle to lead the investing. Uh, And so you've had kind of a, a cool life. You've lived in a bunch of different countries. You've worked in a bunch of different countries. You uh, invest in companies all over the globe. I'd love to kind of hear some of your story and where you were. I mean, you worked for a big, huge corporate firm one of the powerhouses in, in accounting at PwC. That's right. And you ventured off into all these different things. And so I'd love to kind of hear what got you to where you are today as an investor, an entrepreneur. But you were previously a corporate businessman.
0: That's right. That's right. I'll start you kind of at the beginning. I think I left the US when I was 25. So I was with PwC. Uh, at the time, I was doing audit for my, mainly for biotechs and venture capitalists that invest in biotechs, really in the RDU area of North Carolina. And so the goal when I moved abroad, my first move was to Bermuda. I was interested in financial services. Uh, When I was younger, I was doing, obviously, I was doing audits of venture capital, and I really want to understand how banking works, how asset management works, how insurance works. Uh, And really, like the kind of the theme behind why I've lived all over the world, why I've invested all over the world really is based on learning and wanting to learn new things. so when I moved to Bermuda it really it'd be an odd one because Bermuda is such an expensive place to be but it really wasn't for money it was for learning how financial services work learn how to how banks function, learn how asset managers function, learn how trust companies function and then you get almost addicted to learning new things you have Groups of people from all over the world around you. And it's exciting. You have some of the at PWC, for instance, you have some of the smartest people in the world around you at all time. There is no like low, non-intelligent person. So the person sitting next to you can always do high-level transactions, understand complex derivative positions or whatever. And you're gonna have really, really great conversations. You make great friends. From Bermuda, you know, I moved to Hong
1: Kong. Hey, real quick, let me interrupt on Bermuda because Bermuda tends to be a place that there's a lot of financial services, financial engagement. And I think a lot of people that are U.S. born or whatever country you're born in, I know we've got a lot of people in our audience born in the U.S., you kind of think in terms of these lines for the U.S. and these jurisdictions in the U.S. But once you're outside the U.S. and you've got another country, you abide by there jurisdiction and their laws. And there are some different and unique things that you can do. So I'd love for you to expand a little bit on maybe why Bermuda is such a hub for the financial services industry.
0: Well, for Bermuda and Cayman were the two options I was looking at, both British overseas territories. What you have in Cayman today is really what you had in Bermuda maybe like 40 years ago, but Cayman's way more sophisticated. And what I'm talking about is really hedge funds. Hedge funds are more domiciled in private equity funds, uh, tax structures related to asset management. That's that's what Cayman really dominates in. They're, they're good in the trust services industry as well. But where Bermuda really is special in the world right now is insurance. So most of the market really is related to insurance structures. So you have some of the largest companies in the world in relation to insurance operating out of Bermuda. Uh, you can also have incorporated trust companies operating insurance subsidiaries for transfer pricing issues and whatnot but really it's insurance offshore banking and asset management that drives that country there's tourism as well for anyone who's listening that goes to Bermuda you're going to be very surprised how expensive it is it's probably the most expensive place on earth like I've, I've lived in Hong Kong I've lived in Beijing which are both really expensive cities not nothing compared to Bermuda like you could go to a grocery store and pay like $8 for a Corona if you could. So, I mean, it is massively costly, but there, obviously there's, there's no income tax. So us being American, meaning Justin, we have an issue with, we're always going to get taxed from where we are, but you know, your salary is going to get a nice bump as a result of not that, you know, that direct paying New York state tax and federal tax and municipality tax and everything like that. So American-wise, you have a lot of guys that operate over there, largely related to law and related to tax structure. A lot, of, a lot of American expats do that because we use Bermuda for mostly for captive insurance. And then the expats that live there from elsewhere, you have a lot of guys from the UK, Australia, South Africa, and really, really smart guys. And they make real money. So really, it's a, it's a great place to be. If you only want to stay on one island, you make a lot of money, you go fishing every weekend I really enjoyed my time there.
1: Yeah, that's awesome and you know it's interesting to hear you talking about this because I'm currently vetting and, and auditing a strategy that is uh, domiciled in Bermuda and sure. and I have looked at a lot of things in Cayman Islands and another big jurisdiction a lot of people like for asset protection would be the Cook Islands although, that's right. there's maybe a little bit more of a, a negative uh, tail attached to that one, just based on some some court law. But it is interesting that when you get into these other jurisdictions, how uh, there are some protections in place that really bypass a lot of what the US government can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And then there's just opportunities, some loopholes, some unique structures where you can really take advantage of maybe if you live in a place with just much stricter or heavier or or higher percentage taxes, mm-hmm. you can really be protected in a lot of different ways.
0: That's right. I agree with 100%. Whether you're using trust companies to do asset protection or whether you're doing transfer pricing to move profits from, let's say, onshore US subsidiaries or holding companies into a subsidiary or for us say, a separate entity for a captive insurer, you know, Bermuda and Cayman are, are two of the most sophisticated in the world. And I would say for US guys, they're probably the most well known and most used. And you'll have a lot of high end legal advisors, accounting advisors, and whatnot that can help you structure what you're looking to do.
1: Yeah. And private placement life insurance, you'd throw right in there as well for having favorable jurisdiction. Definitely. Definitely. Laws and rules. So, yeah. I mean, there's just so much like for those that have not gotten out of the borders of their own country, there is so much opportunity, so much yeah. unique, let's call it strategizing, massaging to really create some tax friendly shelters in in various different kind of categories. So cool that you have experience uh, with that. And you, you know a lot about that, Cole. Yeah. And then I'm also excited to hear about life in, in China. So tell us about that.
0: Sure. So when I moved to Hong Kong, I was about I was about twenty eight years old. Wanted to learn M and A at the time. That's that's the reason I moved. I'd never been to Hong Kong before. I got my final interview with one of the partners. And he's like, "Yeah, cool. You got the job. But you got to be here. I think it was like in a week and a half." <laughs> so, wow. in a week and a half, I'd never been in Asia. Nobody's no nothing in Asia. But I wanted to learn, right? So I drop a dime and say, "Okay, I'm moving from Bermuda. I'm going to. I'm going to live in Hong Kong." So I get set up in Hong Kong, and, and that's a regional hub. The team that we did was really tried, tasked with more corporate than, than private equity. Uh, and we would basically assist corporates doing m and acquisition, typically of banks, insurance companies, asset managers. Now I've done you know, skyscrapers and Senjin deals. I've done gold mines in Xinjiang province in China. But really, my background was more in insurance and banking, and, and asset management. And that gave me the opportunity to really travel a lot, right? So most of the time in MA, you know, you travel with the investment bankers, you travel with the legal advisors, you travel with the tax advisors, and more importantly, you travel with the client, right? So spent a lot of time in South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, we've done deals in Dubai, we've done China outbound, where I have to go to Boston and analyze an energy company or, or to be all, anywhere and at that time in your life, especially when you're young, I mean, I was willing to go anywhere. I was the first one to say, "Hey, we got a deal in Beijing, or we have a deal in South Korea. Who wants to go be on the deal?" And you need to be that. You need to be in China. Let's say in 12 hours, and you're in Hong Kong in a meeting. I'd be the first one to raise my hand and say, "Hey, I don't know anything about Beijing, but I'll go. I'll go learn everything on the plane." Like a, a lot of times, that would be my job. My partner would send me uh, some financial statements. Say okay, I need you to do uh, like a desktop diligence on the plane, and when you, when you land, you're going to go talk to the CFO of this insurance company, and you're going to see where we get to.
1: <laughs> wow, that's a crash course.
0: Oh, it is. I mean, I've had I've had time. some of my favorite stories. I, I used to love the partner I, I worked for. He's a great guy named Chris. And I remember one day I was coming to work on a Saturday in Hong Kong, and it was a, it was a banking deal. And he calls me at like 8am in the morning. He's like, where are you? And I'm like, Chris, I'm coming to see you. Of course, I'm coming to the office. I see him. He's like, nah, you're going to South Korea. You're going to... We got a a new client. We got to take care of this insurance deal. I was like, okay, when am I going? He's like, oh, you need to be at the airport in like uh, two and a half hours. Secretary has already made you plane tickets and everything. And I was like, okay, when am I getting back? And he's like, when the deal's done. Like, you know, (laughs) at that time, you know, you could be on the road for a week at a time, or it could be two months, you know, but it's very exciting place to be. I love my time in Hong Kong. I spent about six months in Beijing full time, also a city that I loved. It's completely different culture, whether it's food or learning new things about history of the world. I I wouldn't trade it for, for anything. It was a special place in the world to be at the time. Uh, and there's just so much. There's so much going on. It's incredible. If you could soak up 50 basis points of what's going on, you'd, you'd be the smartest guy in the world.
1: Yeah, that's just so cool that you got to experience so much of this, Cole. Where most people don't leave the borders of their own country, you've lived in multiple different countries for extended yeah. periods of time. But you were definitely a corporate guy. Right. Like you did what they needed you to do. Yes. So when did you break those chains and kind of go off on your own? Start your own company, start legacy group, and sure. Start doing things your way. Sure.
0: I would say I always describe PWC as kind of like my PhD in business. Right. So I had to do grad school for accounting and finance, but you know, PWC was really like writing a dissertation. I was about 31. When I came down to Columbia for the first time, and and my story really was, I've been PwC eight or nine years. You know, that's when you really need to start making a partner case. Whether you're going to be try to be a partner in the firm, or you need to go out and do something else. And you know, I was a guy that was willing to go anywhere, and really, that's what I wanted. I wanted emerging markets. You know, I didn't want to go back to, let's say, New York City, or stay in Hong Kong, or go to London, where everything works, right? You go to New York City, like things work. You go to Hong Kong, things work, right? You're just making a developed world more developed. And, and a lot of people love it. But for me, I wanted to do something and say, look, I want to go somewhere aggressive. And like I would be willing to say, okay, you want to make me a partner in a firm? I'll take zero salary. Just give me a cut of what I can do. And if I don't perform, you don't pay me anything. But really, that's that's not the way corporates work. That's not the way, especially accounting firms. They're a little more conservative than I am. So at the time, I was looking at taking positions in Southeast Asia and in Latin America. So I was talking to partners in both regions. I loved at the time. You know, I was doing all my macro analysis. I loved Vietnam. I thought the Philippines had a lot of potential. And then I was looking at Colombia and Brazil and, and Mexico, and none of those guys had dedicated team to run M&A deals for financial services. Everything in those regions was... like, For instance, Southeast Asia was run out of Hong Kong. Latin America was run out of New York. Half the guys that work... not More than half the guys, probably 90% of the guys that work in financial services in New York for PwC doing deals, you know, they don't speak fluent Spanish. So it's pretty hard to come in and buy a bank in Mexico or Colombia or in Brazil if you speak Portuguese. You can't speak the local language. It's going to be a pretty tough pretty tough gig, right? It's, it, you know, the United States is nothing. It's it's similar, but it's not the same market. So I came down to Colombia for my brother's wedding. He got married in Cartagena. You know, we came down, had the big family party. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And I, w- I went to go check out Medellin. I had a, a friend of a friend here. And I just saw the real estate market. And it, it's so developed. Like I was expecting a third world country. in it wasn't a third world country. Colombia, if you come to Medellin, I mean, it looks first world, right? And so there's certain parts that are definitely developing world, but certain parts where, for instance, where I'm sitting right now, if you came into this office right here, I mean, this is developed world office infrastructure, real world downtown area. And I couldn't figure it out because I was looking, I had some of my friends check out like bank lending rates and whatnot, like arbitragely high. Uh, mortgage rates, hardly, hardly any loan penetration, like the amount of people using formal bank accounts was like, at that time, I think it was like only 30%, 40% of people use formal banking. Wow. And it was, and it, I was just saying, this doesn't make any sense. Right. So I came down and I said, wait a minute, maybe I should just take more risk. Right. And so risk isn't something I, I, I won't take unnecessary risk. But when I came down, I said, you know what, I I think I can do this, right? And really what I was trying to set myself up for with the firm I was working for was to kind of eat what you kill and build something from scratch, right? And so, and really what I'm trying to do is start a company within a firm. And so what I decided and said, look, I can take the ultimate risk for a business, I would say, is move to a country that you don't... Like at the time, I, I spoke... High school level North Carolina based Spanish, right? Which means <laughs> I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> right? Right. So I moved to Medellin. I, I I said to myself, you know what? Let's take a bet. And even if I lose all my money, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna learn Spanish. I'll know another market. And if I ever want to go back to consulting or, or do MA again, I'm gonna know the market by the time I lose all my money, right? So I started doing my own deals down here in Colombia. So. I got back basically from my brother's wedding. I spent the next month kind of exiting PwC, uh, setting up corporates here to run companies out of, and then hit the ground running. Right, I went. I went to a, a language school four hours a day every day, uh, and at the same time, trying to get set up, starting with real estate deals, and then then you just kind of build from there.
1: Yeah, that's really cool, and I love hearing kind of what got you there. Because once you experience Colombia, it is just a place unlike any other place, and I feel very blessed that uh, we've gotten a chance to spend a lot of time there. In fact, my brother-in-law works for Kimberly Clark, and one of his jobs is to open up different locations all around the world, and so he was commissioned to open up a location. In Medellin. And so we sure. came many times to Medellin and just loved it. Spent some time at Cartagena, just loved that. It's just an incredible world. Fell in love with the Coco de Limonadas and just yeah. absolutely <laughs> were blown away. The coffee is incredible. I mean, just the whole nine yards, the you know, Parque Jeros area is, is where they live. And it's just such a nice area. The financial district's really nice. I mean, it's, It's a really cool city. In fact, one of our mastermind members, Mitch, lives in Medellin. And he's actually organizing a lifestyle investor mastermind trip down there, which is pretty fun. So Awesome. Yeah. It's a
0: great place to be. For a lifestyle arbitrage, there's not a lot of places like this in the world. And I've been a a lot of places. You know, so for whether it's you know you're on passive income or you're just making money and and you're getting working from here and you're let's say you're making developed world money, you know you can live really really well here on what you would think is almost no money coming from the U.S. in reality.
1: Yeah, and like you have very amazing amenities and realities, like one of the finest oh. restaurants uh, and let's just call it a restaurant experience, mm-hmm. a gastronomic experience mm-hmm. is there with uh, Cielo and many yes. would rate it as right. like literally a top five, top 10 restaurant in the world. And it is incredible. It's a just a neat, full body, all senses type of uh, dining experience.
0: That's right. I mean, you have some great restaurants in the city. You have tons of cool stuff to do. It's sunny every day. That's that's one thing that to me. I mean, I was born in upstate New York. I can't go back to winter again, right? So here is it's the city of Eternal Spring is kind of like the logo or the slogan of the city because it's always about seventy degrees Fahrenheit. So and if it's raining, it's winter, right? For a day that it's raining, it's winter. Doesn't mean it's cold. It's just raining, and that's your that's your invierno. So I mean. It's a great place. And especially if you have, you can run your businesses that say location independent. You don't have to be on the ground somewhere. Uh, it's a great place to, to run businesses from. And yeah. every day
1: yeah, I see more and more talent coming in. There's more and more talented people coming living in Medellin. Totally. And the weather's so perfect that most people don't even have air conditioning units or heaters or anything. It's just like people <clears throat> keep their units open air. It's just nice. You're up in the mountains, it's really cool.
0: I agree. I agree. It's a great place to be. In Colombia, I would say this is my definitely my favorite city.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. So, were you ever able to kind of start this company under the umbrella of PricewaterhouseCoopers or did you have to break off? I mean, at some point you for sure broke off. I'm just curious if you were able to get it started or not.
0: No, no. And under PwC, you have a very... It's, it's much more of a corporate structure. I mean, PwC at the time when I was working for it, it was the largest accounting and consultant firm in the world. So I mean, when I left, they were probably doing low $30 billion a year in revenue, which is, you got to remember, that's, that's bigger than a lot of your clients. So you have to work within a structure that works for them. And I, and I work with probably within the most loose team, within the M&A and strategy teams, uh, they're a bit more looser with how they operate. It's not as, not as really, really structured like the tax and, and accounting advisory and the audit side. But you know, me going and saying, hey, I'll go to Myanmar. At the time, Myanmar had just opened up. And that was one of the things I talked about with a partner that I worked for. I said, look, I don't mind if you just send me to Myanmar. And if I have to sell bookkeeping services to, to foreign companies starting up, uh, let's say, a little subsidiary entities there, I'll do it. I'll give it a shot. But it's one of those things you're saying mm, that's a little too
1: aggressive. Yeah. So is, is that really where Legacy Group started? Right then, you made the decision and yeah. moved forward and said, "Hey, I'm going to do it on my own now. Let's let's go. Right.
0: The minute, the every entity I started from the time I, I thought of Legacy at the time, because you know I was around, I was in Asian culture, and Legacy was really it, it was twofold. I didn't know exactly what I was going to be getting myself into, but I knew it was going to be around investing, and I knew it was going to be around things that I wanted to be proud of. Right at that time, you know, I had a, a little bit of money saved up from working at PwC my whole life, and I said, "What I want? What do I really want to do with my life? Right? What What am I really doing with time? Which I think is the real currency we have to talk about." Totally. And say, what am I trying to achieve? And I I love investing, right? I love placing money in in that, let's say, educated bets, right? And say, I want to see this company succeed for more than me just making money at it. So legacy was, you know, I want to do things I'm proud of, which is legacy. And legacy is also like a transition of wealth, right? So I don't want to invest in things and lose all the money, right? Or lose the capital so I can't continue. The goal is to keep doing things that... That we're proud of or that I was proud of. So when I moved to Columbia, all the entities that I started, everything was under a a legacy kind of name. Every entity I started was under a legacy kind of umbrella.
1: Hey, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my online course. As a listener, you probably know my story. In under two years, I had multiplied my net worth to over eight figures and my investments were generating enough passive income for my wife and me to quit our jobs. Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to accomplish this in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. My methods are unconventional. But I've always wanted to share my strategies and help as many people as possible accomplish financial freedom. And while the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor course, a roadmap for anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of lifestyle investing. Anyone can use my system, no matter what level they're at in their investing career. So if you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Now let's get back to the show. Very cool. And then obviously rolled up, you've got your, your parent company, but you're, very spread out into a lot of different areas and it's funny cuz you mentioned, you know, before that you're making calculated bets. So it's it's not gambling. When some right. people invest, it is gambling, right? Yes. It's just like going to Vegas, throwing some money on the roulette wheel yes. and seeing what happens. But when you invest the right way, you can gain advantage. You can do that through terms, you can do it through inside knowledge and understanding, you can do it on understanding and and predicting future trends. And so for you, you've gotten into real estate and hospitality and agriculture, arts, technology, education. I mean, you're all over the board. Yes. Did it start in just one or how did that work out? I'll take you through kind of the...
0: I guess it'd be the thought process of kind of, I also need to explain why I wanted Southeast Asia and Latin America, you know, at the time, especially Latin America within my circle of people that I hung out with, they wouldn't be able to point out Colombia on a map. Even the biggest country, Brazil, people wouldn't know. Wow! Right. So no one in my world would talk about investing in Latin America. No, nobody cared. Right. So, and I would see guys come down, let's say buy an apartment in Hong Kong. And I'm not I don't know if you're familiar with prices in Hong Kong, Justin, but it's like, mm-hmm. I would say like 2,000, 2,500 square foot would be like, you know, that's a normal price in an old, Wow. Place, right? So you'd see guys come down, splash a million bucks on something that would be like a walk-in closet level. And, you know, they're doing it one caps, right? At the time. And this was...
1: Wow, I moved here
0: in 2015, and so I'd see let's say sourced Asia wealth go down to Australia. They would buy you know houses with their pocket money that get from their, their parents, spend a million bucks, and they would never lease it, never do anything with it, it's just like stashing gold in the ground. So a lot of my kind of thesis was there's too much capital in the developed world, right? And whether you're in Asia or you're in the United States, it's in certain concentrated areas, same with in developed Europe. But, you know, within Asia, you know, at the time we were doing studies about Singapore housing, all the like 40% of the world's wealth at the time we were predicting was in Singapore due to all the attrition coming out of Switzerland after they went, went after all the American money of guys that weren't paying taxes, they started doing more heavy KYC. And a lot of that moved to Singapore. What we saw is just these massive capital flows, and they have to place capital. And I thought to myself, not that I don't I don't want to compete, but I say, if no one's down there, I don't have to invent Facebook. I can do businesses that I understand, and I can compete because I'm going to bring in, let's say, world-world knowledge, some real-world capital, and then let's see what we can do. Right, so in places like Latin America, Southeast Asia, I would I would say is is more difficult to compete. I have peers that operate in Vietnam or Thailand, and there's there's a lot of capital in those markets. When I first came to Colombia, there was nothing like no one. I mean, if you came down with half a million bucks, I mean, you could do real deals, right? And today, like for instance, I was watching uh, a podcast with the CEO of SoftBank, Marcelo Claude. And he was talking about the amount of Capital SoftBank is going to put in to Latin America. Now they're focusing a lot on on Brazil and, and Mexico, but you know they're talking about deploying five billion a year. That would be like the whole last twenty years in a year for, with one firm. Wow! Right. So what we've kind of seen in Latin America is capital has needs to have somewhere somewhere to go. Right. And when I started doing businesses, really what I wanted to do is one, businesses that I understand. So go back to your original question. If I don't understand a business, like for instance, it would be very difficult for me to invest in an AI company, right? Because I'm, I'm not an AI scientist. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you this is good code, this is bad code. But with things like coffee, I can learn into it. You know, I got into coffee by trading... Literally trading containers of coffee on my own dime. I would front trades and create my own trading company. And I did flowers before that. And when you start engaging in the market, you can learn it. And it's not that you know, coffee is easier than AI. For me, for me, it is. But for certain guys, they might prefer AI. So when I look at businesses that I want to invest in, the first thing to me always is, do, do I understand what they're trying to do and how they make money? Right, and if I can't if I can't say yes, I understand it, I, I really want to shy away from it unless it was just something like an, an immaterial LP investment, and let's say my partner Adam says we, we should do this, and I'll say, okay well, we should we should do this, but we're not going to be involved with doing anything with it, right We're not going to be educating management anything think because we don't have much to educate them on if we don't know what we're doing, but that's how that's really How I did coffee and real estate, too, that I think I I was able to get into and understand.
1: It's interesting. I I just want to comment on something because you talked about how money needs a place to go, Cole. And you're so right because we have more money than ever in history. You know, the US has printed the most money it's ever printed, 40% of the money in circulation was just printed or, or created. Uh, within the last two years, you've got a lot of other, a lot of other countries following this this playbook of just printing money and so you've got money then like i mean tons of it there there's so much money in the system. so what do you do do you do you invest it back into overpriced assets, overpriced stock markets, overpriced real estate, <laughs> or do you go to these other markets like you're talking about where you can really get a great deal. You buy something for much less than the value of it, especially... You might get it for less than the value today, but especially once you do some work and you improve it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I mean, you led me into the answer. I think you know where I'm going to go. <laughs> there was an article out by the head of the World Bank, I think, that came out and was talking about the amount of capital that basically gets trapped by, that, say, doing balance sheets on central banks, just keep buying liquid bonds, and they build up these massive balance sheets. And basically, you're just redeveloping infrastructure buildings that are, that are really already developed world. And you, then you, you're driving cap rates like way down. And I'm mostly talking about real estate, but it happens in every asset class. You can talk about it with public equities. You can talk about it with public debt. A lot of public debt is underwater versus inflation. So his was the same conclusion I'd come to and say, look, there should be a capital reallocation to SMEs, primarily small, medium-sized entities, in emerging markets or developing countries that have less access to capital, right? So I'm seeing more and more that say very high level, whether it's venture capital guys, investment banking guys, whoever, say, you know, we have to start spreading our chips around. To find deals that I would think are interesting in the United States at the moment would be very challenging. So if you gave me a portfolio of, let's say, half a billion dollars to deploy in the United States, and you say, your goal is to get as much alpha as you can. I don't know where I would start. If my term sheet said you have to invest in the continental United States, you can't be a holding company that invests abroad. You know, that that would be tough. You know, I, I don't know where I want to place capital. To me, I'll always place it. If I have the choice, I would always place it in private companies and private deals that have enough scale to be successful. You have a successful management team, they've shown success over the years. And they have the opportunity that's safe for big returns. Like I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I, I like to invest in companies that I have some control over, right? Because i like to see what's going on. So here in Colombia, I would be one that I wouldn't invest, you know, 100 of my net worth in an LP position that I didn't have control over. But you know, me and my partner Adam, we invest virtually all of our own money in our own deals. So if something was ever happening to our LP guys, they say, look. We're going to be hurting much more than you guys if anything ever, ever went sour. You know, if I was at a, a different stage and then say you're at a capital allocation phase, you're not, you know, 38 growing businesses and you've already done your exit, you have a pool of capital. I would look at whether it's LP positions and and, and let's say your business is not actually running businesses. You know, I'd look at LPs in, in private companies, I look at private debt. I think there's a lot of portfolio additions that you can do. There's numerous things you can do for tax structuring or get insurance structures that can be exciting to throw some capital in, and especially for protecting your family and whatnot in case something dire happens. But really, the two markets that I like are, are private equities via direct investment and, and private debt.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, you know, I did a really fun episode on my podcast with an Alts specialist named Chris Schelling. Sure. And I just I can't speak enough about private equity, private debt and the arbitrage opportunity, the scale opportunity, the protections that you can put in place. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that so many people don't know about this and that they're just tied to the public markets. Yes. Yes. Which have had a roller coaster recently, you know, since the start of the year. But yesterday, what a roller coaster day. (sighs) And but at the same time, you've got some of your most sophisticated investors in the world that are in alternative investments. So it's it's interesting because the education is not going to the masses. Most people just they're being conditioned to put their money in the markets, whereas the, the most successful investors are doing exactly what you just talked about, private equity, private debt.
0: Yeah. I mean, Adam and I, my, my partner Adam and I write articles about this from time to time. And we write articles about alternative investment. Every trend I've seen with, let's say, mid-level and high-level family offices ultra high net worth individuals, their percentage going to alts has increased dramatically in like the last two years, dramatically. So whereas usual, if you had a normally functioning public equity market, public debt market, you didn't have debt that was underwater, you didn't have public equities, basically on a macro scale that says your average is the highest, some of the highest it's ever been in the history of public markets, they would might only put 10, 15% of their total portfolio in alts, right? There's like, you know a lot of the liquidity issues that they have with alts, they say, "Look, I can't liquidate my position like this if something happens." But nowadays, I'm seeing a lot of these. They're going up to about 40 yep. percent on a lot of these family office portfolios, and and they need, obviously their businesses their businesses moving money and their businesses making money. So I think that industry, the alts industry in general, is going to grow exponentially if you have public markets behaving the way the way that they are now. Yeah. Well, the main thing to me is that you're... To touch back on what you said before, just we have too much capital. There's too much money in the market. And it's just... Infl- and there's so many public companies, right? There's a limited pool of public companies. There's a limited pool of public debt. When you have everything with the same term sheet saying you can only... You have to check the box and everyone checks the same boxes, you're not going to find arbitrage positions, most likely, as a single investor. I mean, if you're not moving real capital amounts to buy... You, know, you need to buy 100, 200 basis points of public companies at a time to really get any, even a moderate amount of control or moderate amount of arbitrage. I don't think the average guy can do it. But what I'm seeing now is a more democratization or more of like a democracy coming in, especially for, let's say, the, the minimum level private banking clients. So if you have a net wealth between, let's say, a million and 10 million bucks. Like in the past, like in my my past, when I look at banking deals, no one, no one in the banking, private banking world cares about that. One to 10 million, really, you're getting what seems to be fancy REITs and you're getting some fancy mutual funds. No one's calling you from the private equity firms to do LP subscriptions, you know, unless you have a million to throw down on each fund. And they want to sell you a family of funds, right? They're not gonna come out and say, hey. There's a healthcare fund, there's a biotech fund, there's a mining fund, and it's a million per. And if you can't subscribe multiple open commitment and say, we're going to, you're going to invest whatever we want. And every time I do a capital call, you send it or I'm going to sue you. Those guys have always had a very limited product range. They have the same product range. What I would say is the person who's got 10 grand in the bank. And I'm seeing more guy, more companies start to try to target that range. So that, for instance, where Adam and I try to target is really guys like that and say we're looking for private market investments. They don't have the capital pool that say to buy our company, right? They they don't have 50 million bucks to come out and say, look, I'm gonna I want to copy what you guys do, and I have 50 million to throw in that one idea. They say no, but I've got you know 100 to 500 per. I like what you guys are doing. And this is a unique deal that you know Goldman or TPG or anyone they can't sell me. So when I go and talk to a client, no one besides Colin Adam can rep this product because no one no one else has it. So they find it valuable.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting how you talk about you know the ultra high net worth people where fifteen percent is exposed to alternative investments, but. If you look at it today, because that, you know, that was before you said there's really been like a a shift these last two years. Yes. And there most certainly is because I read all these reports and the vast majority of what I see is over 50% of people's net worth, ultra high net worth individuals, over 50% of their net worth is in some form of alternative. It's either commercial real estate and private equity, kind of like what we're talking about, but then also private debt as well. It's just interesting. And so another thing that I I know that you're a big fan of is farmland, specifically farmland outside the US, where you can actually get it for a good price. That's right. And that may even lead into one of your other investments that you've done recently with Green Coffee Company. So I'd love to learn more about this. And by the way, shout out to your partner, Adam Jason. Sure. Not only is he a guy with two first names, just like me, so I loved him immediately, (laughs) but he's just very impressive, very smart, very interesting, and you guys seem to make an incredible team. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, farmland in general, I love the ability to consolidate and scale. What I look at it when we first started the project, we kind of looked at it like commercial real estate. And we're saying, okay, you can build out an asset. Basically, let's say you build out a farm. It's almost like you're building a hotel. And then you have a hospitality operator that yields it out. And when we started, the hypothesis really was when we're looking at pricing and saying, look, I can arbitrage if I buy a lot of farms at one time, you consolidate infrastructure, and you just sell a little bit further down the value chain. And you say man, we can get a lot more yield than we would get if we bought a commercial shopping center, for instance. And so we had an investor pool that were comfortable with commercial real estate in, in Colombia, and they wanted exposure to, to ag, basically. They didn't really care which ag, they just wanted it to be ag and have a collateralized nature to the balance sheet. Within coffee, when we started, what you'll see is there's really not any let's say, global companies that operate within coffee. And it, it's just kind of all by itself. It's really segregated to where everyone is a very, very small landholder. And there's very small, a very small number of like consolidated groups. And no one runs like, let's say, like an international corporate. And so once we started operating four years ago, you know, we started saying, man, as we scale this isn't just a yield and sell at a cap rate in the future. This is a whole ecosystem play, right? And if we can scale to a bit, a higher degree, I mean, this is something we can throw on a public market, right? And so in the last couple of years, I mean, you've seen public markets just explode. And as you referred to Justin yesterday, I mean, now you're seeing downward movements and saying, hey, our valuation is coming back to earth. And that's something I talk about with Adam all the time. If we were at an exit scenario today, of a corporate sell versus an IPO, I think I'd be an idiot to say to the IPO, right? Of of the valuations we're seeing. I don't know if it's going to stay like this forever, but if it does, I mean, the IPO markets are so, there's such a high valuation. A lot of, of that being all these retail investors are just throwing money at something that's not, let's say SEC restricted for them. And it's very exciting. So, for green coffee, it's kind of evolved from what I'd say is, you know, commercial real estate play into where we're trying to be now. Is, you know, I think next year we're going to be the largest coffee producer in Colombia, largest consolidated coffee producer, you know, in Colombia. Wow. For coffee, number two in the world.
1: That's incredible. Cause you're already number three right now. You're the third largest coffee producer in all of Colombia, which is one of the largest coffee producing regions in the world.
0: Yeah, actually, we thought we were number three, but we're actually number two. We found out a couple Even days ago. Even better. Yeah, we, That's awesome. One of the ones that we thought were the largest, they'd actually sold all their farms and they they just leased them. So it's almost like a WeWork where you sell your farms. It's like a mm-hmm. sale. Of that, but, you know, so they don't have they don't have any balance sheet. So there's only one that that is really just a tiny bit larger than us. And really, if we just develop the land, well, we, for instance, in, in December we we about double up our land size. We did a it's about a five million dollar acquisition that we did that we do seller financing and we paid over time, so it's pretty attractive. You can still do those kind of things in Colombia, whereas in the US it'd be pretty difficult, right? And when we build that out, I mean, we'll be for for Colombia wise, we're we're a big player. I mean, that's it's one where you can get the heads of the coffee union. Like we had a big opening event for one of our infrastructure that basically. The, you take the coffee cherry and then you make coffee from the seed, right? And the processing facilities that we built are world-class. You know, we get the heads of the coffee union to come present with us. We have the mayor of the town. We have the head of economic development for the, the state of Antioquia, which is the state that we operate within. So it's a big deal. I mean, coffee is a kind of a national product in Colombia. So that one to me is, is definitely, to me, it's the most exciting project that we're involved with. And obviously it takes up The most of our time as well, which I think time will
1: spend. Yeah. And why do you feel that Green Coffee Company is the premier leader? Not just by volume, obviously, that you know, you can argue this based on facts, but let's talk about I think your coffee connoisseurs are all about flavor and (laughs) keeping it pretty systematic and, but also having it not be too bitter and just all the things that make it a quality. Brand and product. That's right. I mean,
0: one is elite coffee buyers will always want a portfolio of coffees. One of the most important things. There's, there's like two ways you can do it. One, you can have really great marketing, and then convince people with marketing that your coffee is great, and just distract the fact that it's not. You know, to make great coffees, it really takes production level guys that are doing proper uh, agricultural techniques. You have. Like, so for instance, we have about five agronomists that work with us and, and all they do is coffee, right? And then you have to have traceability and sustainability practices, right? So where in, in other markets, you're, you're seeing it in certain, let's say, verticals, but in, in commodities, especially in coffee, you have the consumer driven to say, I want you doing things the right way, right? I don't want you to see you exploiting workers. I want to see that, let's say, the trade is fair and it's transparent, I'm not aware of anyone on a large basis in Colombia that can tell you and say, "Okay, this is a shipment of coffee. These are the the lots of our land it came from. This is the exact species it comes from." And by the way, we're not going to mix them all together. We know exactly what the quality. We cup every basically every lote that comes out, and we do quality control. So that on on the other side, the buyer side of the elite buyers. So some guys only trade commodities, but guys that. That are really the high-end buyers, they have what is the equivalent of a sommelier for coffee. And it's called the Q-Grader. You grader. Know, and they, they'll they cup and rate coffees and say, look, this is a nutty scent. This has a scent of chocolate. This has a, net, uh, that's a sense of spices, whatever. And they'll put in numeric scores. We we do that on our end as well. So we have our own Q graders before we send anything. And then if anything goes in before we sell, we'll match contrast and compare with the buy side, right? So our sell side is doing quality control at a level that I'm not aware of anyone that does it on our levels. So what we've kind of had to do in order to do that, because what we do is not normal Columbia. You have to transform a number of processes to get to a level that says, "This this is a global quality. And really, it takes... You have to change the whole ecosystem of how you operate. The ethos of what you're doing no longer is, hey, we've done this forever, so we should keep doing it, to what's going to give us the best product, price, and what are we proud of at the end? And I got to attribute a lot of this to to our CEO, Boris, really smart guy. And he's done a great job creating those ecosystems that we're talking about right? Create quality and processes that we can say, hey, this is how... It's not luck that we're getting great quality coffee. This is engineered from origin.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, your facilities are incredible. I mean, I'm really excited to come tour in person, which I've talked already with you guys about. But man, you have such a production and it's so neat to see and the product is really good. So uh, I just want to say hats off to you on making an incredible transition from being a guy in corporate America to going on your own, going into uncharted territory, both literally and figuratively and really making a name for yourself, creating a business, investing in all these different areas and then really helping to grow and scale this, incredible coffee company. So I'd love for you to share where our audience can learn more about you.
0: Sure. So you could find out more about Legacy Group, which is the asset management firm that I'm a partner in at www.legacy-group.co. And you can see everything that we do. You can see all of our portfolio companies. And that would include obviously the coffee company and the tech company that's right behind
1: me right here. Very cool. Well, I had uh, the luxury of having a nice little Christmas gift from you guys with some coffee, and uh, I appreciate that, and and my wife appreciates that, and we just think you're doing some incredible stuff. So thank you for that, and I really appreciate your time. This was an awesome interview, and you just dropped so much knowledge on everyone. So I'm I'm uh, just so eager for people to to dig into this content here today.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for having me here. It's a lot of
1: fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I'll I'll leave our session as I always do. So to my audience, to those watching, to those listening, what is one step you can take today to move towards a life of financial freedom, whatever that step is, but a life of living by design, not by default, a life that's on your terms, not autopilot. What's one step you can take today? Thanks, and we'll catch you next week.